The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views or positions of the Frankenmuth Historical Association. Some episodes may contain subjects that are uncomfortable for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and guten tag, and welcome to Historians and Lederhosen. I'm Garrett. I'm Nathan. And I'm Malcolm. We are three historians from the Frankenmuth Historical Association, located in Frankenmuth, Michigan. The association owns and operates a seven-gallery museum, a historical log house, Fisher Hall, and a collection of over 30,000 artifacts. Check those out at frankenmuthmuseum.org or right on our Facebook page at Frankenmuth Historical Museum. This podcast will tell the stories of Michigan's Little Bavaria to the real Bavaria and anything in between. Be sure to tune in every other week and listen to the three of us and our guests as we dive into the wide world of history. Auf Wiedersehen. That's how you're my stomach. So does I am. All right. Welcome into another episode of Historians and Lederhosen. Glad to be back. Glad you're with us for season two. Um, if you're a first-time listener, be sure to subscribe, leave us a review, um, and check out season one of Historians and Lederhosen. Some pretty great stuff, and we're hoping to add to it this season. Um, coming to you with a pretty timely episode today, all about Independence Day. Um, so, what could be a more American tradition than this, right? Um, giving you... Uh, just sitting around the grill eating hot dogs, hamburgers with your family probably today. So here's a little background on the history of it as we'll present to you today, and we'll get into a discussion on it, some other fun nuggets as well. Um, But first, before we dive into uh, history of Independence Day, I've got a segment for both you, Malcolm, and Garrett. Um, Sounds fun. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So if you're listening in, uh, please play along. Here's how it's going to work. It's called Who Am I? So I'm going to ask a series of questions, um, and this is the this is the first time we're doing this segment. So uh, <laughs> bear with us, listeners. But uh, do we do you two want to uh, interject and kind of say who you're thinking? Like the earlier you get it, the the like you're the okay. winner kind of thing. Or do you want to just write it down as soon as you think you have it? I think and let interject. The listeners play along. Like after each question, we each get one guess to see who we think it is. Oh, okay, we can do it that you way. Want to try that one? Sure. Yeah, my yeah. first guess is okay. George Washington. <laughs> <laughs> not bad, not bad. All right, uh, so here we go. Who am I? I was born in 1722 in Boston, Massachusetts. One of 12 children. One of 12 children, okay. I got Pretty vague. Of, I got a so, list in my head. But good yeah, luck. I got a good short thinking. All right. First I'm, draft pick. <laughs> I am considered one of America's founding fathers. All okay. right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Getting a little more narrow. Narrowing right. it down. I was asked to be a tax collector by the British, but often refused to collect taxes from the colonists. What a king. Hmm. Absolutely wonderful. I wonder if the, I think I know the key to uh, who this might be, but keep going. Okay. All right. I went to Harvard, studied the writings of John Locke, wrote my master's thesis on the legality of resisting British authority. Well, that's like everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Down at all. Uh, Yeah, I did that. (laughs) All right. (laughs) British authorities led a mission to arrest me, but it was foiled after American spies got wind of the plan. This actually resulted in the battles of Lexington and Concord. I think I might have it. I think I might have it. What do you got? Oh, now I'm. uh, Are you Sam Adams? Yes. Yeah. Nice. Ah! The, ne- the next couple, we're probably going to give it away, but that, that was good. Nice work. Oh. Um, so well, well, yeah, yeah, finish off. The, the, the next ones were, I was leader of the Sons of Liberty. So he was oh, one okay. of them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then second cousin to eventual president, John Adams. Uh, mm-hmm. I think and I then, probably, yeah. <laughs> contrary to popular belief, I didn't actually brew beer. Ah, yeah, there it is. Oh, <laughs> so, yeah. So that, yeah. Oh, well done, man. We yeah, that was that last one would have been in the real giveaway, but yeah. Wow. Nice. <laughs> Cool. So hopefully, I'm, I was like the first. My first thought was Benjamin Franklin. Oh, I said 1722. Yeah, and I was like the first three. I was totally Benjamin Franklin. I made that joke about the key. But right. <laughs> and the one that threw me off was tax collector because I'm like, I don't think Benjamin Franklin was a tax collector. Um, <laughs> See, so, I could have seen it though, you know, and especially right. with the studying. And I was like, well, he was in, you know, you know, hanging out in France for a while too. So I could have kind of seen that, you know, kind of undermining the. The French nobility there, which is really ironic how much time yeah. he 
spent with French nobility to then mm-hmm. basically like prime them to take <laughs> over <laughs> and start their own revolution. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That was, well, that, that was, was a good first cool. try. Yeah, I really, really like that. I yeah. enjoyed that immensely. We didn't make fools of ourselves either. Good job. Not completely. <laughs> Not just yet. Uh, <laughs> just we, bear with us. We will be disabling the comments. <laughs> no, 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 I'm kidding. Um, all right. Well, let's get right into it. What are we, what are we talking about today? Where do we want to start? So we're talking about uh, Independence Day and uh, 4th of July, well, quote-unquote 4th of July, um, and talking about events leading up to the Declaration of Independence. Uh, oh, say can you see? <laughs> Since you're chiming My in, Melvin. country tis. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the musical side of the podcast. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Second segment. I didn't prepare for this. <laughs> um, so... Since we're kind of diving in, uh, maybe, uh, Malcolm, do you want to give us kind of some background a little bit on uh, Independence Day? Like, how did it all come about and and stuff like that, just wherever you want to jump in? Sure, yeah. I mean, I think everyone in their mind kind of jumps, like, if you say, where did the the revolution start? Um, Or the War of American Aggression. No, no, I think most people jump right to, you know, the shot heard around the world uh, during the Boston Massacre. But I think it's also helpful to kind of back up and contextualize some of the tensions that were rising throughout this period. So, you know, tensions were high between the colonists and the British Empire. And a lot of that stemmed from uh, the French and Indian War, which was also referred to was the Seven Years' War, which ended in 1763. You know, the um, you know we have these colonists um, that are mainly British colonists, and they're in a lot of conflict with French colonists too. I mean, the French occupy almost half of. Well, I guess a quarter, a half of the half that is currently colonized um, is almost predominantly French territory up into Canada and down through um, what is now, you know, Louisiana. Um, And so there was a lot of conflict between those two uh, parties. And obviously uh, the British had to foot a pretty big bill to defend the colonists. You know, even, you know, this is how some of our, you know, uh, classic Americans like George Washington really make a name for themselves is in the French and Indian War. Um, So obviously it was a a pretty uh, trifling conflict, um, which eventually, um, you know, basically left the British Empire broke um, because it was a, it was a big it was a big hefty war the British um, were constantly at war throughout the uh, the 1800s so it left them pretty broke and in the British minds well we just spent all this money to protect the colonists they should probably pay us back for all of that effort we gave so Britain started imposing a lot of taxes um, some of the most famous are obviously the sugar trade tax, which forced colonists to buy sugar exclusively from Britain and then pay heavy duty on that, um, followed up by the stamp tax in uh, 1765, and then the Towns um, the Townsend Act in 1767, which both levied basically just really high import-export taxes on basically everything. Um, so there really wasn't anything that could be taxed. You kind of got to remember that income tax really isn't a thing yet. That's not, you know, income tax or or payroll tax. It's like It just really doesn't exist. So import-export is the way that a government like the British government and the British crown is able to levy taxes and support all of their activities. And in the British mind, this was totally legit. They paid all this money to, um, you know, keep the colonists safe um, in this conflict and so they were kind of owed this money to as recompense. I think we, I think just one other thing to add about the French and Indian War, the Seven Years' Wars, A, the British weren't only fighting on the North American continent. This was all across the globe with mm-hmm. different French colonies next to British colonies. And the other fact that really angered the American colonists is that they were primarily the ones fighting the war as well. Mm-hmm. They had help from um, the the Redcoats from the British Isles themselves, but primarily it was led by state militias and, or well, at the time, colonial militias and the colonists themselves. So when they're being taxed for -hmm. fighting this war, they're not really seeing the reason because yes, it bankrupted the, uh, the British crown, but at the same time, they were the one fighting the war. Shouldn't they be able to like reap the reward essentially well and in addition to that too you have the the lack of representation that the colonies have the colonies are not treated as like they're treated as subjects but they don't have representation in the british parliament because even at this time you know britain is a constitutional monarchy there is a monarchy at the top but there is a british parliament that is helping make decisions and the colonies have basically no representation in the british parliament so this is where we get the saying taxation without representation you know these heavy import export taxes and all these different acts are being uh, issued by the british parliament, but the colonists themselves have no um, ability to argue or represent themselves to not be taxed this way. So yeah, it's definitely seen as unfair. And ultimately, these taxes 
met with um, a lot of refusal from from the colonists. They basically just stopped buying things. They started just sort of uh, harassing. Uh, basically, the Americans canceled Britain. <laughs> uh, I mean, seriously, they, they basically, they were just like, no, we'll, we'll just cancel the crown. Um, they held rallies of opposition. They had many boycotts and they would harass sympathizers, you know, just like push them around, yelled them in the streets. Like it's full on, like without Twitter, you, <laughs> um, it's basically a cancellation. So ultimately these taxes met with the colonists refusal uh, hurt British businesses, which is really all it comes down to. Is that it's economics. The British businesses were being severely hurt by this, so intervention was essentially necessary. So the British started uh, sending troops actually to Boston, where a lot of the uprisings were starting. So they sent a thousand troops to kind of quell things down. And basically, uh, this is how we get to the Boston Massacre. So it's our, our first major event leading to the revolution. A thousand troops were sent to Boston to quell dissenters and take better control. And then a group formed and started harassing these soldiers. And little by little, the, the group turned into a much bigger, what was perceived as a mob. And so more and more soldiers came, tensions really rose. And finally, a shot was let out and five people uh, were killed. And this was known as the Boston Massacre. This would then lead to a series of rebellious acts by colonists, including the most famous, which is obviously the Boston Tea Party, uh, where a group of patriots dressed in indigenous garb uh, boarded a ship and threw all the tea into the harbor. Nearly 10,000 pounds of tea was thrown into the Boston Harbor. Um, this led to more control by the British, uh, leading eventually to the Intolerables Act and more troops in Boston, up to, I think, 3,000 more were sent thereafter. Um, so basically, Britain's at this point where it's like, okay, we got to take control of these colonists. Like, this is really really getting out of control. So this is how we lead to kind of our, our first major conflict. Um, with the uh, with the events in Boston, um, 12 other colonies sent delegates to a Continental Congress to discuss basically their options. Like, okay, this isn't going well. This is starting to get worse. Britain is becoming more involved. What do we do here? Um, they did attempt to negotiate with the king to try to kind of settle things down and not lead to open uh, armed conflict. But they were ultimately dismissed. This angered the colonists and felt like they were continually not being properly represented for these, you know, uh, the, the control and the taxes that were being levied against them. So they decided to arm themselves. And so uh, many of these, um, uh, these 12 um, uh, colonies basically took up Minutemen. Um, so, which was the early militia just kind of on guard, ready to do whatever needed to be done, not necessarily declaring open armed conflict, but basically being like, we're ready if right. something happens. At a, at a minute's notice, you're ready to go. At yeah. a minute, yeah, exactly. Yeah. At a minute's notice. So, with the colonists um, army them arming themselves, this obviously angered the British, and they're like, "Whoa, what's going on here? Like, we're trying to take control. They're now like upping the ante. So now we got to double the ante, basically." Uh, so they set about quashing the rebellion very quickly. So they set on Concord, where there was a large um, militia, uh, but they met troops in Lexington, um, where the first shot was officially fired that started the war. Um, this is generally referred to as the shot heard around the world, um, a very famous saying from this time, and uh, would essentially signal the start of the Revolutionary War. So the rebels were outnumbered, and they were actually pushed back to Concord from Lexington. Um, but when the British advanced on Concord, a bunch more Minutemen arrived and actually overwhelmed the British and actually pushed them back from Concord, which was unheard of. And they just kept pushing, kept pushing, kept pushing, actually pushed them all the way back to Boston against all odds. <laughs> like, it's it's the most kind yep. of most miraculous start to this whole thing is that really this British army should have just quashed them at Lexington, but they retreated, they rallied their numbers and were able to push the British all the way back to Boston, which is just it, it, miraculous. It's incredible that this happened, that this is what kicked off the war. Yeah. And I mean, Lexington, I think I, I was looking on a map yesterday. Uh, it's like 20 miles from Boston. Yeah. So British were retreating for like 20 miles mm -hmm. and you had um like no small thing. Yeah. And it was, uh, it wasn't like the standard sort of uh, battle, from my understanding, right. that you see in like, uh, oh, is it The Patriot, the movie, yeah. where you have both <laughs> sides just lined up against each other and fire back and forth. Um, the the colonists at this point were kind of guerrilla warfare. So they were mm -hmm. firing I from forests and trees and like under, you know, and on back yeah. behind coverings and stuff like that. Right. Yeah. Pushed them all the way back. And you I, can almost kind of think of it more as like poking and prodding as opposed right. to like open conflict in a field. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It was very much just like they just kind of kept poking and kept overwhelming them and the British were so fearful of getting outflanked 
that they just it was better to retreat than get outflanked and get encircled. So, but they were able to push them all the way back to Boston. Right, and I think one of the just this is kind of conjecture, but one of the things that I've thought about when I'm taking class on the Revolutionary War is one of the reasons the British didn't respect the American colonists and still like uh, like jokingly today call us like lesser than the British sort of English is because of the way we fought that war, we just defied all rules of war on the European continent. We went, no, we don't, we don't care if you line up in big lines and just start shooting at us. We're going to, we're going to hide in trees essentially. So they, they started to view the American colonists as lesser than them. And that kind of fueled their like fervor against us, I guess. Yeah. That arrogance too, of just like, there's only one way to fight a war. I mean, Throughout the rest of history and history before that, too, every time the traditional army comes in and wants to fight a traditional war, it's the more innovative army that tends to win because they're willing to just do whatever it takes to win and right. not play by all the rules. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So as you're talking about all those things, Malcolm, um, I can't help to like focus on the fact that like all of this is sort of centering around Boston, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and historians like to use kind of a term for this that they, they like to call... Um, sort of these social movements or revolutionary movements that kind of start and spread out. They call it a grassroots movement, right? Right. So like when you um, plant uh, a seed or a plant or grass, for example, like the the seeds eventually spread out, um, but they start in one sort of place, right? Um, And so that's just a term that like historians like to use. Um, And when we talk about the American Revolution, like this is one thing that I never really understood, I think, when I was growing up, that it really started in Boston, right? Um, I mean, I know all these events sort of happened, but I never made that connection that it's like, okay, it's all these people in Boston are the ones that are like really fighting back. And it's it's kind of funny when you think about Boston today and like the kind of the sort of, especially sports teams. What about Boston today, Nathan? <laughs> especially like when it comes to sports teams, yeah. those fan bases are kind of known to like, they are going to stand behind their team no matter what. They're mm-hmm. going to like fight as well, like if their team loses and things like that. And so it's it's just kind of funny these tropes that last for so long. But well, and it makes sense too. Like when you look at it um, from that kind of movement, I mean, like all trade is based on sea travel at this point. Sea travel mm-hmm. is the best way to move things around. Um, you know, sea travel and trade routes is what ultimately helped Western people discover, if you will, uh, the North American continent at all. So the fact that Bo- the fact that Boston is a major harbor, um, a major point of entrance for all colonial trade, um, I think that's the that's the big the big ticket there is that you're you know the British are leveling all these different kinds of import export taxes. So yeah, Boston is going to feel the pinch more than anyone else because they're the ones that rely on things coming and going all the time. So right. it makes sense right. for them to be the most hurt and pissed off about what this is doing. And and, yeah. and also you have to think that they're coming into contact with the British also the most. Like they're yeah. the main port of entry at the time for um for the american colonies like new york wasn't nearly as big as it was or as it is today it wasn't as big back then and it was still kind of Mm -hmm. transitioning from that former dutch colony into an english colony so there was still kind of that sort of cultural aspect and also although a lot of our founding fathers start to come from virginia virginia is a little later to the punch when it comes to the american revolution because a they're far away and B, they just have a bunch of tobacco and they're on their plantations. Why should they care about the British up there? Yeah, yeah, no, like their trade isn't quite as dependent. Like, you know, they move it up to Boston mm-hmm. to mo- move it out. So as yeah, so it's not as much of a, and I a think deal what, for them. Yeah, I think what we're kind of getting at is that like, it, as you even said in Lexington Concord, that the British like should have probably crushed the colonists in some sort of sense. But it was like these individual choices um, and that's why I bring up sort of this grassroots movement, right? It starts locally. It starts with these individual people making these specific choices. Um, and so tying back into Sam Adams, the trivia, right? Um, he he had a long history of kind of hating the British. Um, his father actually started um, a bank with a few other gentlemen, I believe. Um, and they were basically printing out money um, that wasn't necessarily backed and the British shut it down. Um, and so it almost bankrupt um, Adam's family. But, um, and so like from that moment, um, they had to fight against the British. And so Adam's had this long history of 
really fighting against them. And I think that's what really kind of drove him um, to stand up and to be so active in like the Sons of Liberty and to mm-hmm. really organize people um, against the British. And so he actually did this in a, in a few different ways. Um, one right was the Sons of Liberty who would literally go um, to places and protest. They were one of the groups that were at the, the Boston Massacre, for example. Um, and also he started a newspaper as mm-hmm. well that would print kind of um, – if you want to call it propaganda, you could, but basically <laughs> um, he was printing these stories from his perspective, right? And it was all against mm-hmm. like the British and he was dispersing these throughout the colonies. So like this really started in Boston, um, but it's fascinating to watch kind of track how it really spreads and the other colonies get involved and stuff. Um, one other group too that I, I just wanted to point out real quick, we talk a lot about the Sons of Liberty. There were also the the Daughters of Liberty, um, and they Absolutely. engaged um, in a lot of kind of indirect protests, if you will. I mean, I guess I wouldn't say indirect is the best term, but they they organized boycotts of like British goods. And so there were actually many moments where they organized these um, events called like spinning bees, they called them. And so a bunch of women would kind of gather in the town square, or maybe at um, another house, for example, and they literally make clothing and textiles so that like they didn't have to buy um, the British clothing, right? That was coming overseas. They didn't want to pay that tax. They didn't want to help the British in any way. Um, so the Daughters of Liberty were pretty influential as well, but really why bring all this up, right? The Sons of Liberty, Daughters of Liberty, grassroots movement is like, it's seemingly these sort of ordinary people, right? They're just banding together, um, and fighting back against the British and they're making these choices. And so it's kind of fascinating to think about it from that perspective, because I think we always think of this American revolution as something like, oh my gosh, like how did the Americans win? And how did they beat these overwhelming odds? It's like, well, it's it's through these choices and through these individual mm-hmm. people fighting so hard um, for what they believed in. So it's 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 pretty fascinating, um, and there are a lot of political dynamics about it, obviously. But oh sure, yeah. um, w- when you think about just the historians, too, have always kind of used um, a couple different methodologies to um, a lot of different methodologies to study history. These different lenses, if you will, to look at moments. One of those is called like structuralism, and so like that's the idea that like these larger sort of structures or governments or things at play are really controlling people's actions, right? Mm. Um, then a little bit later, historians start to fight back against that in their own writing and say, okay, no, these people have individual choices and agency um, is a term that they use like for those choices, right? And so it's it's pretty fascinating when you look at the revolution through these different lenses. Yeah, I agree. Um, and- <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we, we had plenty of other people um, as well that made an enormous imp- impact on the revolution. Um, we probably can't focus on all of them, obviously, um, but... One man that was pretty instrumental in all was uh, Thomas Jefferson. So, Garrett, I know you have did a little bit of digging into Jefferson. You want to share a little bit about him? Yeah, absolutely. So, like Nathan said, there are so many people that we associate with being founding fathers of our nation. But the one person that's most, like, directly associated with the 4th of July or Independence Day is Thomas Jefferson, because in our modern um, historical lens, we, we view him as the author of our Declaration of Independence. So, like... I'll just kind of start with his his early life a little bit. So he was born in Albemarle County, Virginia, in April thirteenth or on April thirteenth, seventeen forty three. Which that is the western part of Virginia. And early on, his family started to move closer towards the inland of Virginia, which allowed him to um, or allowed his family to kind of gain a sort of wealth early on. They were more of like a modest family. His father was an uneducated um, ex surveyor he made he kind of made his own wealth through that means and when he was able to move over into like more inland virginia they acquired a modest but kind of large plantation with roughly 60 slaves which kind of later on when you study jefferson um that's one of the issues that comes up with his character is he has had a pretty troubling past with the issue of slavery but this is kind of just a lens into where that started it wasn't like he hit the age of adulthood and started buying slaves. It was something that he was raised into like many of our um, Southern colonists, essentially. Yeah. And I think that's something that a lot of people don't realize too. Like George Washington was six years old when he inherited his first slave. Yeah. Like, right. This was completely ingrained and normalized in the, in that mm-hmm. this wasn't something like Garrett said, where you hit adulthood or you're 18 and now you're like, 
oh, this is something I should do. This is, like, this it's, is something I want to do. It, it was so normalized in this way. And I, yeah, I think we don't really realize that. And it doesn't make it any less horrific, but. It, <laughs> right. Right. And um, just kind of what um, Malcolm was mentioning with George Washington inheriting his first slaves at six years old, Jefferson's father died when he was 14. And that's when he kind of took over the main role of his family. Um, much of his writings show that he was not the biggest fan of his mother. They were not close. He did not really. Um, stay close to her when he kind of started moving and making his um like personal and political moves upward he didn't really stay as connected to her as maybe some of us in the modern world stay connected to our moms i know that i talk to my mom every day he kind of hit like when his father died he kind of went screw you mom i ain't talking to you and <laughs> um he he moved in with the local schoolmaster and was boarding with him until 1760. That's where he learned um, classic languages like Latin and Greek, which at the time um, were kind of the symbol of being educated, was being able to speak these mostly dead languages at that point. Um, Sorry, real interject here. You mentioned backing up to talking with your mom. I challenge you to write handwritten letters to her and then see if you communicate every day. <laughs> Facts. That's, 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 that's a little goes. different when it's a five-word text. <laughs> right. Hey, mom. Hey, mom. How are you doing? <laughs> um, but yeah, when he left the local schoolmaster in 1760, he moved to Williamsburg, Virginia, which is kind of another really important colonial town during that era of American history. He started attending the College of William and Mary. Um, all reports from this period of time show that he was an incredibly obsessive student. So reports show that he spent 15 hours a day reading and studying. Um, you're lucky if I spend two. Um, and then he spent three hours a day practicing and playing his violin. And then the other six hours of the day were spent for eating and sleeping. So if that shows you anything, we don't need eight hours of sleep. Um, eating and sleeping. Like he's eating as he's sleeping. That's what I'm <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And he was studying to become a practicing lawyer. That was kind of one of the leading um, professions of the day, especially if you wanted a political career. That was kind of a status, a symbol of being like well-educated was you became a lawyer. Still is. It really is, yeah. yeah. And he studied and practiced law with George Wythe, who is one of the um, most wealthy people in colonial Williamsburg. He did that from 1762 until 1767. Then he struck out on his own to practice law outside of Williamsburg. Um, and in 1768, one of the main reasons he left George Wythe's law practice with him was in 1768, he wanted to become a candidate for the Virginia House of Burgesses, which at the time that was their colonial legislature. Um, the British crown allowed each colony to have their own legislature. One of the big issues that kind of comes up right before the outbreak of the American revolution is they start to delegitimize these legislatures and start to tell them that it doesn't matter what you choose in your colony. It's <laughs> kind of the British crown's decision, but it, at the it, time it's kind of like a high school, um, student council, student council is <laughs> like, yeah, sure. You elected yourself and <laughs> you, you have no real power here. What are, the what principal says do? what the principal says. Like, <laughs> Uh, hour and a half lunch. No, no, go to <laughs> class. <laughs> but yeah, so that that was when his like that was his first real like entrance into politics. That was when mm -hmm. he became an actual kind of politician at that time. And in the early 1770s, that's where we see him kind of grow as a person, grow as a politician, gain like a sort of prowess. So with that growing like reputation in this colony of Virginia, he was elected as a delegate to the Second Continental Col Congress in 1775. So Malcolm mentioned the First Continental Congress, which the reason that was called was because the leading politicians of the colonies recognized that their kind of war was imminent. There was, you had to make the decision, are we going to enter all out war with the most powerful nation and empire in the world at the time or are we going to just back down and try to do this through the legal means and kind of the the first continental congress ended with that like they recognized war was coming but they also were not ready to enter the war there was too much disagreement within the colonies the second continental congress through like the help of people like Samuel Adams' cousin, John Adams, and all these other founding fathers is where we kind of start to see the American colonists come together and decide that there is no route to take other than war. So with that, um, 
reports show that Jefferson was one of the most quiet delegates at the Congress. He was tasked with um, kind of drafting the resolutions made because the way Cong- the like parliamentary Congresses worked back then was you kind of had to make a resolution to di- get anything done. So, so he's the opposite of how he's portrayed in Hamilton then. Exactly. <laughs> David uh, Diggs. Broadway play. It's, it's inaccurate. <laughs> um, but you mean there was no rap battles? <laughs> Actually. Oh, I'm sure there still was. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> Got to get in a good rap battle. Every revolution has one. But um, what John Adams noted, because John Adams, I'm pretty sure, was the president of the Second Continental Congress. So he led all of the discussions. Um, he, his, he noted that Jefferson was consistently advocating for independence. There was not a point where he was like, oh, I can see your side that we should stay part of the British crown. He was always like, no, we, we need to be our own independent nation. So with that and with his um, like ability to write and draft resolutions in eloquent language and language that made sense to the Congress, he was selected for a five-man committee tasked with creating a formal list of reasons why the colonies were breaking with the crown. Um, so Adams requested that Jefferson write the first draft, um, which he completed in a few days. This was this decision was made, I think, on June fifteenth of seventeen seventy six. So um, about three or four weeks before what we consider our Independence Day, and that's where we come into the question of did independence happen on July fourth? So what? Ooh. Ooh. Wait, it's not July fourth. <laughs> uh, take alert. So. <laughs> So I think in the Americans' perspective, it is July 4th. They debated this draft on July 3rd and 4th. So they I were- think, I think it was actually the second that most of them signed um, the declaration, right? Yeah. And I think that they were- the. What I've been reading, though, is I think that they just kind of came to the consensus that it was the 4th, and that was the date they put on it. They signed it, and then I think it's the date it was sent across. Yeah, I think essentially they had to like kind of send it out and get the last few signatures, and the 4th, that finally wrapped up. But yeah. it's it. One of the things that we have to recognize about like this kind of colonial history is everything happened at a snail's pace compared to what we do now. Like, like if any of you have visited, like, even the Michigan state legislature, all of their voting from their desks in like the hall is done electronically and it's projected on a screen and you just have to hit a button yay or nay. Whereas back then you had to like get written, like (laughs) you had it vocally, but you also had to have someone go around and get the written like, um, record. John was supposed to be here. Where is John? (laughs) Grab the declaration, get on your horse and go find John. (laughs) Exactly. So, um, with that, because of like the way that they debated the, the, um, the draft itself and the way they were kind of revising the draft. Jefferson was actually rather pissed that they were doing this because he was like, this is the best language that you could have ever had. (laughs) Um, So I don't know why you're revising this, but they they revised about one fifth of the total document. And Jefferson was noted as saying that he did not want to display like eloquent language, like that was going to like look good on like legal standing. He wanted to represent what the Americans Um, felt as a people and he that explains everything about like the the bulk of the document which is like the hundreds of reasons why we hate king george the (laughs) third but what it doesn't explain is the words that americans identify with the declaration itself there's 55 words. I counted them. Um, and I just want to read them off because... 55 words or like total? 55 words, one sentence. Okay. Um, so the words we kind of identify with the declaration are, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, derived their just powers from the consent of the governor govern yeah um tripped at the end there oh yeah (laughs) i was really into it (laughs) almost um but so a i just want to point out that that is technically grammatically a single sentence um but i just want to point out that i can't hear those words without hearing them sung because of hamilton right (laughs) but I'm glad that you're right on that vibe with me, Nathan. <laughs> right. I was over here. Yeah, I know. <laughs> bouncing my head back and forth. So even though kind of he took, he, he wrote in his memoirs that he just wanted to represent what the American people felt. And that's why he made all these lists of grievances with King George III. But no one really knows why he just kind of, he went off, he ad-libbed that. He was just like, this is my stamp on this. And that is mm-hmm. one part of the document that 
I'm pretty sure they didn't revise. They kept it like that. And a lot of people, <laughs> so with that, I think Jefferson is also quite angry because up in, even into the 1790s, the American people did not recognize him as the author of the Declaration of Independence. That is a more oh, really? modern sort of thinking. They recognize that the Continental Congress worked as a whole body to revise that huh? document. So all of them in their own right are an author of that document. <laughs> I can just imagine them like Jefferson just like, hey, Hey, Benjamin Franklin, check out this sick burn. Oh, that's dope. Keep that in there. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but so take that, Georgie boy. Th- that's pretty fascinating. And I mean, I don't, I don't quite, I've never dove into all those intricacies of like who wrote the declaration so much, but like it, it is pretty fascinating um, that a lot of these men are getting their ideas from one man in particular, that being John Locke, right? right. A, a philosopher. I don't what, know if what? you were already going there already, but um, it, I mean, he might've, come up with uh, um, a lot of this terms and language and stuff, but like consent of the governed, like that's one thing that you see in a lot of these early founding fathers. Right. Um, Sam Adams, I mean, he was, they were all writing about John Locke and like his ideas just took hold um, and became a way to really fight back against the British. Right. And there's a lot of debate throughout history. Like John Locke is one of the um, philosophical names that are just thrown out there as being the inspiration for a lot of the American founding fathers. Others are like Voltaire. Um, A lot of people have looked back through like the Declaration of Independence and tried to connect it to historical documents because Mm -hmm. when you're thinking about it, the Americans are some of one of the first sets of colonies to actually fully go through with trying to become independent from the British. They're one of, they, they don't do it through legal means really. They just throw out this document and they're like, we're going to war essentially. Um, But other people have pointed towards like numerous historical British state documents, such as the British declaration of rights from 1689, which is when the, um, tyrannical King James II was deposed and replaced with William and Mary of Orange. Mm-hmm. But more recent scholarly work, which is, this is, I'm just really excited to share this because <laughs> I found this when just doing my own research, is that the format for the document is very closely related to a Dutch document from 1581 written by Plakat van Verlatinga. I'm sorry to all my Dutch <laughs> listeners. Um, all of them. <laughs> but it was written to justify Dutch revolt against the rule of the Spanish. So this is mm. when kind of the Dutch Republic is coming to be. Um, and the argument relies on the distinct similarities. That's what they're kind of showing is it include, they both include these lengthy lists of grievances against their oppose or their opposing King. They also seek redress for these grievances through civil and legal legal routes. So it like the declaration of independence, like I was saying, it wasn't really done through legal routes, but that's kind of the whole reason is it was supposed to kind of be a legal document of declaring independence. That's what they used it for. Well, yeah. And isn't that fascinating too, that they actually felt the need to still provide like a legal, like a receipt basically yeah, just right. like, Hey, we're gonna, that's the red receipt. We're going <laughs> to fire shots and fight, for our independence, but like, here's a receipt that like, you know, if you need to, if your bureaucrats need to stamp it for your files, here's your copy. Like that's crazy. Right. And Um, the, the other final similarity is that both of these options show that, or like both of these documents show that the last option is to revolt. The last option is to fully rebel and go into a full all out war, which is kind of, it's kind of interesting because at the time for a lot of these colonial, um, like empires and these imperial rulers, they weren't quite like prepared to go into all out war. They had to quash rebellions in certain mm-hmm, places, but mm-hmm. it wasn't, it was never really an all out war. And that's what the Americans kind of did. They were like, we're actually, yeah. we're banding together. We're creating a full like continental army to fight you. Well, and it's crazy too. I mean, like John Locke was Scottish too. Like, it's not like he was just some guy somewhere else mm-hmm. that right. they were pulling ideas from. Like he was, British. <laughs> like, he was you know, one of them. Yeah. Like, you know, like they were pulling ideas from British citizens and even like, you know, I've, um, you know, seen references pulled out of the Magna Carta, 1215, yeah. 550 years before the writing of the Declaration of Independence and the American Constitution. And there are definitely like early seeded roots of like ideas of freedom and self-governance from the Magna Carta, which was right. the whole point was to limit King John's power, mainly because the barons were pissed off at him. But like by the same token, there's some interesting like nuggets in the Magna Carta that are like, oh, this is setting up a constitutional monarchy. Like this right. is this is going in that direction. And then the fact that then 
technically future British citizens <laughs> pulled from it to declare their own independence and say like and just sever all the ties to me is just fascinating. And I think just kind of to wrap up what I've been saying because I know I'm getting a little long, but I was asked the question like what other um, nations have kind of followed our declaration of independence if there have really been any. One of the things I oh, found yeah. is that over half of the 192 UN recognized countries have a document that is similar to a declaration of independence. It might not be like copying our exact list, but all of them felt the need to put in writing their declaration of independence in yeah. the most closely related, like historical document, because many people will point to the French revolution and say like, this is our closely related, but really the French revolution started as anarchy. They oh, up yeah. until, and it was anarchy right, for, a while. for a while. And up until <laughs> the French declaration of the rights of man, there mm -hmm. wasn't anything that resembled that, um, that like f the lock esque, like, um, philosophy of like rights of man and like the well, and arguably even at that time too most of europe was laughing at that document right. because they were producing this rights of man while continually just sending anyone who had pocket change to the guillotine or anyone that challenged right. their ideas so like there, there was an inherent irony in that um which i think there is also in america too i think there is this inherent irony of like this found these founding documents the declaration of independence and eventually the first draft of the constitution that have these incredibly broad and stable and wonderful ideas but all while saying you know all men are created equal and free no women have the vote. No women have any say or any mention in right. either of these documents. And all while owning slaves, all while these people who say that, you know, we deserve this, this is our right as human beings to not have to be subservient to a king and pay taxes to a king, all while owning other human beings and will continue to own human beings for quite some time after right. that, you know, like, and in the United States, women wouldn't gain the right to vote until 1920. <laughs> right. And I you think know? just one, one last thing to add is a lot of people, a lot of historians, some of them spend their entire career trying to find these documents that are like, this country was directly influenced by the Americans to um, declare their own independence. And there is like one, that has been directly related, and that is um, Flanders, which is now part of Belgium. It's kind of the border between Belgium and the Netherlands. Um, and they declared independence from the Austrian Empire in 1777. I don't think it went well, but they followed they followed the uh, the American model, and they just went right for it, and they were inspired directly by the Americans doing that in 1776. Well, and the crazy thing about the American Revolution, if, if you will, allow me to pontificate for a minute, is it's one of the only ones that went relatively well the whole time. Right. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, there was like campaigns that, but we've already compared it to kind of the, the French Revolution just a couple decades later. Um, and like the French Revolution is a mess. It's an absolute mess. Like, 80 it's, years it's long. It started by like with a spark and it kind of went crazy and it went good, but then it went so bad. I mean, like they literally, there's a, literally a period called the Reign of Terror <laughs> led right. by Robespierre. Robespierre is just cutting the head off anyone that, you know, blinks anti revolution. To the point where then they finally cut his head off, right? Um, and the and, and like the ultimate result of the French Revolution is Napoleon, who becomes emperor of Rome and you know dictator <laughs> of France, and then tries to you know um, take pull over Julius Caesar and take out take out most of Europe. So like like by all by all accounts, the French Revolution, which was motivated in the same way, a lot of the same talking points. It even involves a couple Americans, Lafayette, who goes to the States and fights the American Revolution, goes back to, you know, um, Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson are spending a ton right. of time in France, mm -hmm. you know, promoting these ideas and everything like that. And yet it's a it it basically falls on its face in the end and then eventually kind of comes back around. But the American Revolution is so unique in that, like, you know, it was this big war. They fought the war and they won and then they became a country and continued to be relatively speaking, a successful country up until the civil war where it's basically one socioeconomic issue that splits the country in half. But even after that, the country for the most part stays together and it doesn't have this complete like fall apart the right. way other countries have with their independence where the eagerness of independence sort of like self-destructs 
mm-hmm. after they get it, which is I think what happened with France. Like they were so eager to just get rid of you know, and they um, had no clue what to do after. Yeah, the monarchy, and it was just like, and then it was just chaos afterwards. The Americans stayed very organized the whole time, even into the Civil War. It's still very organized. You still know who are the heads. You know, like who do we listen to? Who are we following? Uh, without getting obviously into all the detail uh, thereafter, um, but I think that's just fascinating about the American Revolution is that the Americans they pulled it off and then they kept it together, like they kept the ship moving forward. Yeah. Um, obviously, tons of issues with um, slavery um, <laughs> being the number one. I mean, I just yeah. you can never understate <laughs> the, right. the impact of slavery on Americans and, and American society. But you know that the ship kept moving forward. The country stayed. Together, all, yeah, and although we're we're going like a little past our time period, it's it's interesting that the founding fathers these debates were had these like one of the things that was mentioned during the Second Continental Congress is how can we put in all men are created equal when we have slaves and everyone was just like no don't ask that question that's is not it a- the Second Continental Congress when they when the the three fifths. No, that's the uh, compromises. That's the uh, Constitutional Congress. That's uh, okay. in 1789. Um, but that was Which where I was wild. Where I was getting <laughs> wild. When I where I was getting at is like that. The the Declaration of Independence is so central to the American ethos. Like where that mm-hmm. is something that is just so core in our identity as ourselves is the the question of all men are created equal like mm-hmm. and that's something that like liberty and the pursuit of happiness right I mean, it's a it's a is literally a rally cry right you know? and it it stays central in all political debate up until we create what we now know as our governmental system of the united states when we ratify the constitution but the issue is that debate about slavery and how does that like revolve itself and involve itself into the all men are created equal um kind of like tenet that's why the word slavery is kept out of the um constitution until the 13th amendment and that is why like even even when it came out like in 1776 even when it was declared like we were independent we have all these thoughts or all all these like the central tenets like i'm saying it's something that like even americans could realize the hypocrisy of at that time Mm -hmm. and it's just it's interesting Coming, if you don't, if you permit me, uh, coming back to just sort of a museum perspective, this is a question I like to ask uh, interns that I mentor and stuff like that, um, because I think it's a really one of the most fascinating museological uh, questions to ask, especially in, in the states. What do you think is more important, the document itself or the words written on it? Words for me. Works. I mean, we talked a lot about how these ideas are getting passed back and forth between peoples and nations mm-hmm. and stuff. They're causing these revolutions. I I really think it's it's the core of it is the ideas, and yeah, the words on the paper. I right? I I think that that's very valid. I think the words are the most important part. But I think in the terms of just being American, with that idea of the words being passed across all of these different country lines, the thing that defines the Declaration of Independence as American is not just the words, it's the document. It's the document itself. And I think that's the only reason I, why I would say, like, from a museological perspective, like, we that's why we retain, like, and we yeah. pre- restore and preserve I, the, it's the a, Declaration. Absolutely. It's a huge question. And, um, and I always ask that because it's always kind of a debate that I see pop up every couple of years right now because the National Archives preserves the document um, and it's supposed to be on display for people to come and see. But because it's been on display for so long, you almost can't read it anymore. I mean, right. you, there's, um, I, I found a couple shots online where it's like shows like what it originally looked like and what it now, and you can like John Hancock's name is almost gone. <laughs> like, yeah, right. um, it's crazy. And it, 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 it raises some really interesting questions in terms of, uh, I think we would all agree unless I'm wrong, that the public deserves to see that document, that it is a document of the American people Therefore, the American and it defines the beginning of Americana, um, and therefore the people deserve to be able to see it. But if showing it to them is to the detriment of the documents that no one else can see it eventually, is that okay? And then that's kind of what leads me always to that philosophical question well, what is more important? I mean, we've transcribed the document, we're not losing the words ever, but if the words can no longer be seen on the page, is that a problem? And is it worth stopping people from being able to see it 
so that we know it's still there. But then, like, if we can't see it anyway, what's the difference if the words are on the page or not? And of course, um, just for a lot of our listeners, a lot of this is due to light damage. Right. Um, although the archives has put in immense um, uh, resources to climate control the the Declaration of Independence, as you and I'm sure if you just watch the opening of uh, National Treasure, they kind of go into some of the stuff that they you know the, it's the documentary a little, film. Yeah, <laughs> it's a little overblown, but like you know, like they, they do they they keep it you know completely um, you know humidity um, and temperature sealed, no direct light, UV filters, all this kind of stuff. But yet, still the constant exposure to to um, the public view. So it, it's a really interesting question to me that I think we always need to be considering is the balance between preservation and ex- and accessibility, mm. but then also. At what point, like, what is more important? I don't always know. I don't think there's always a clear-cut answer to that question, especially when you say, like, well, we got to keep it out of sight so that we preserve it, but then if it's out of sight so that no one can see it, what's the difference of that versus the words eventually disappearing off the page? Yeah, because, I mean, if if you think about it, if you hide away the Declaration of Independence, right, Mm -hmm. and you're trying to preserve it, in theory, less people are coming to see it, and maybe in the long run... Then it has less of an impact. People start to fall away yeah. from these ideas. I mean, this is all theoretical. Oh yeah, I think. But it's it's a fascinating debate. One of the things that I was just kind of thinking about is, I think the question's answer changes on the mood of the nation as a whole, because I think at times when our nation seems incredibly divided, having that document there physically to see is a reminder that like this is what we became a nation for but like when we're relatively peaceful and we're all working together like for the few times in history that we were all working together relatively peacefully (laughs) um i think the words do it justice but i think like in a not to not to get political in a time like today having that document there to just look at and be able to see is really important to remind us that like anchor people right yeah yeah no i think that's a really good point um, yeah, these are the things we sort of think about, I think, as museum professionals um, when we talk about Declaration of Independence and Independence Day. I mean, these are the sort of things that are rattling around in our brains. Um, so I think we should probably wrap it up here. We're, we're getting uh, pretty lengthy here in our discussion. So, <laughs> But um, don't forget, please subscribe, leave us a review. That's really, um, reviews are the way that our podcast is able to reach more listeners. And so if you like this, we highly encourage you to leave one if you can. Um, it's your, it's your way that you can do your part to kind of share history with others, share our history with others. Um, so thank you all for listening and I'll be the same.